So welcome everyone, and thank you for coming out on this auspicious night, which is the title of the sutta, and also on this kind of kind of inclement, shall we say, weather night where it feels sort of like a day to stay home in your pajamas. Really, it has felt that way. Tonight I'm going to speak about the Bade Karata Sutta. Um, it's had many translations of its title. An Auspicious Night is one. And I think it's the best one, or it's kind of slightly ahead of the others, in particular because of the way the Buddha would sometimes try to turn around the culture of his day when there was a lot of interest in astrology and what would be a good day and a bad day for certain things to happen. So what he's saying is that any day is an auspicious day if it's lived in awareness. Um, although night is the word that's used, so I imagine, firstly, that he was giving the talk at, at night in the evening, as we are now. And also I learned recently that in Tibetan culture they say uh, night for day so like a week isn't seven seven days it would be seven nights and I imagine that this may have been something <coughs> carried through from the Buddha's time so that excuse me about I don't know what this is going to sound like in the upload or whatever <laughs> but um, it just is an interesting thought to think of uh, a night as a day like as the interval, like it's something complete. By the time you get to the night, there's a point of rest and something seems to come to an end or come to rest or, I don't know, it just feels a little bit different than thinking of in terms of day by day. It's also been called one fortunate attachment, this talk, the best way of being alone and uh, delighting, delighting in the wholeness of mind or the unification of mind, which is a nice one. It's referring to the meditation process. Now I like to sort of throw up a sutta and try to internalize it or try to understand it or make it mine or take it as a meditation instruction for a period of time. So I invite you all, too, to um, make a connection with this teaching, which has been alive for 2,600 years by being given again and again and written down and absorbed and mulled over by generation after generation. It's very important in the Zen tradition, as you'll see because of its emphasis on the being present. But I just want to evoke the you know, the original scene where the talk was being given. It's kind of like deep time for us and a contemplation in itself, like giving us a sense of what we're connecting with. From a book called Mountains of the Mind by Robert McFarlane, there's something curiously exhilarating about the contemplation of deep time. He's talking about geology and mountains, but I'm just thinking of much shorter term of 2,600 years. True, you learn yourself to be a blip in the larger projects of the universe, but you're also rewarded with the realization that you do exist, as unlikely as it may seem. You do exist. So the proof of our existence is in 
the awake mind experiencing our life right now. Um, and there's something really interesting in thinking about the continuity of um, history and even our own ancestors, our own origins, shall we say. So the Buddha gave this talk for the first time. Later on, Ananda, his uh, cousin and attendant, gave it in a very similar way. And then another disciple, Mahakachana, took it up and changed it somewhat, which was maybe a sign of Mahakachana's confidence in his own understanding. It's The basic verses were repeated many times in many forms. I think it was really one of the pith teachings of ways that the Buddha would express the teaching to help other people. Like It shows up um, in an illustration in the um, Dhammapada where this acrobat does a somersault and he lands on his feet on top of a pole. And uh, when he lands on his feet on top of this pole, he's enlightened and he utters a verse that's very similar to this one about not having anything in front of you or behind you, which is about the past and the future, but just being here. Um, the Buddha gave this talk in the Jetta Grove, which was a very beautiful place that he liked very much, and he liked it so much that his friend, the merchant, bought it for him um, to give retreats in. So I think he gave something like 35 three-month courses in this grove that was supposed to be very beautiful. And those... Um, retreats were all done during the monsoon, so it was raining outside. You can probably imagine it was night and it was raining, and much like now, there was a, not to say that I'm like the Buddha, but just that the feeling of being inside when there's rain or under shelter when there's rain. And also in conditions of deep retreat, like lots of the suttas are almost like arguments that the Buddha is having with people who come to question him or ask something, or these various encounters when he's wandering around India and teaching, so they're prompted by the questioner. But in this case, he spontaneously gave it to a gathering of um, his students because it was kind of, they were in retreat, so he was probably giving the night, nighttime talk. Larry Rosenberg likes to teach this. Um, I think in 2002, I took a little course that he gave on it. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh also has good material on it if you're interested in following it up. Um, and then there are some other sources that I consulted, but if I went on in this vein, we would not have time to even get to the sutta itself. So this is Larry's translation, which is um, very good in its immediacy and its ability to be felt, um, at least by my mind. Listen and pay close attention You shouldn't chase after the past or place expectations on the future. What's past is left behind. The future is as yet unreached. Whatever quality is present, you see it right there, right there. You're not taken in, you're unshaken, you're not swept away. This is how you develop the heart ardently doing what must be done today, for who knows tomorrow, death. There's no, be- there's no bargaining with mortality and his mighty horde. Whoever lives this way, ardently, continually, both day and night, has truly had an auspicious night, so says the peaceful sage. So 
So just letting the instruction land. Um, the pith or main part of it is whatever experience or whatever quality is present, you clearly see it right here, right, right here. Then the Buddha goes on and says, well, what do I mean by um, not chasing after the past? And he says, well, when a person thinks about how her body used to be, her feelings, her perceptions, her emotions, and her consciousness, and her heart is burdened and attached to those thoughts, that's what I mean when I say she's chasing after the past. When that person thinks about how her body used to be, how her feelings, perceptions, emotions, and consciousness used to be, and her mind is not enslaved or attached. This is what I mean by not chasing after the past. So it's not sort of like saying that, you know, it's a delusion to think that you have memories of your childhood or, you know, when someone's trying to get to know you, you won't tell them where you grew up or anything and say, no, I'm here now, you know, deal with it, sort of thing. (laughs) But it has to do with the quality of being kind of stuck on things from the past. And there's some instructions on how to be with the future and the present. So I'd like to just go through it like that and um, see if some of the examples that I give can be helpful. So the relationship with the present, since... um, he says, we have to do what has to be done right away, and we might die in any minute. I like to say that the way of being present, the mindful uh, relationship that we have with the present moment is really key. And the qualities of mindful awareness or the qualities of being able to be present or how we relate to what's going on. This is sort of the beauty of the teaching, that we're able to sort of generate or connect or make a kind of adjustment so that how we're present, it's kind of like how we eat our food, you know, like eating it in a bolted way or eating it in a greedy way so that then you feel like you need to eat another one. No, like it's actually tasting the moment as it comes and really enjoying it and savoring it or maybe not. so much enjoying it, but at least being present for what it's like. You could say that whatever facet of mindfulness comes forth according to what's needed, it may be that we need a more sort of compassionate attitude for ourselves or for someone else that's imbuing our presence with a quality of love and support. Or it may be curiosity to look a little bit beyond the surface Or it may be a kind of wisdom of letting go or uh, seeing the non-self, not taking things personally. But we're not relating to what comes up through memory or images or calculations or conclusions that we've already made. The other night at the sitting, small sitting group that I'm part of, um, one of the participants had just come back from a trip to Turkey and she was talking about a an imam that she'd met in Ephesus in this um, mosque that she went to. And she said, I think I've met the Dalai Lama of Islam. And he was such a loving man. Like she was demonstrating his gestures and imitating the way that he spoke, like embracing um, 
her and my friend and her husband as visitors and saying, no, no, you know, don't put any money in the donation box. We want no money from you. And he gave them a calligraphy and they talked about peace and stuff. And it just felt so good to hear the humanity on the other side of the stereotype that we've just, it's really um, difficult not to think of a person living in that, you know, carrying that kind of religious role as being some kind of other because we've heard about so many rotten so-called imams, you know. So the goodness of that, of being able to see the humanity beyond the stereotype is something that mindfulness can help us with. The other thing I want to draw attention to about the, you know, presently arisen state is that the Buddha is not saying stay in the moment. And I think this is a really interesting subtlety or interesting thing, in particular maybe for people who've practiced for a while. And I know that some people might be here for the very first time tonight, but to see how it feels to each of you. Like, I might even start talking about the moment through this talk because it's become such a standard or it's so easy for us to think in terms of time in those ways. But there isn't necessarily ever any reference to a moment in the Buddha's actual language and the words that he used. And sometimes the teachings or teachers will try to draw attention to the fact that there's no such thing as a as the present moment. There's only what's happening. Like, to say that it's a moment is almost like bringing a concept to it. And to say that we're trying to, you know, get into the present moment sets up a kind of a dilemma, like we're trying to go into a little room and lock the door and never come out, you know? Like a little space where will be enclosed, maybe we'll be safe in the moment. But to me, if I think about just relating to what's here, what's coming up, it feels a little bit different. It feels a little easier and maybe more open in some way. Like I'm not trying to shut myself into something. So try that on. About that we're connecting with what's arising or what's uh, coming up, what's in front of us, what's happening inside of us. It may not make a big difference to you and it may just sound like words but these experiences that are you know I think the other thing is like the moment sounds like it's going to always be slightly the same and the experiences constantly changing constantly altering and it's always put together out of various different elements like um, since the Buddha is really talking about how we experience something not like about some abstract state of affairs how we experience things um, depends on lots of factors like weather and body and culture and your past and how much clarity and how much affection there is in the mind, how present you are and that kind of thing. So it's much more fluid sort of. In this sutta, the Buddha also doesn't say mindfully. He says ardently, ardent which is almost like interesting because it's passionate. It sounds passionate. Then he says, seeing clearly right here, right here, not taken in, unshaken. That's how you develop the heart. So I feel that the words are, you know, are sort of his heart coming out, like to encourage us and kind of exhort us to shift our allegiance from this regular way that we have of being kind of constantly sucked in and attached and frightened of what's in our mind and choose to live in the only experience that we can ever really deal with which is the one that's here 
we can only be mindful here and now. There's no other time. Like, although there, are, we have memories of other moments, and clearly it seems there's going to be a future, even if you know we can imagine ourselves dying and thinking that the world will go on without us. Sort of. That doesn't mean that it's a total delusion to know that there's that kind of unfolding of past and future. But in terms of contacting and connecting what's real, it's only now. No other time. So he's calling for this kind of a shift to reground in a different place rather than the regular way that we function. And because, he says, it's okay to think about the past and plan for the future as long as you're not kind of stuck there, then we have the full range of our faculties still available. We just have to look at how we're relating to all of those pieces. But actually talking about the type of awareness is toward the end of this um, sutta or set of verses. So um, I should go back and start where he talks about don't chase after the past. So um, has everyone here had mindfulness meditation instructions? Like you've heard about paying attention to the breath and stuff, right? Have you noticed that when you decide to pay attention to the breath, it is not so easy? (laughs) What's the first thing that happens? (laughs) Right? (laughs) So this thing about like staying in the present moment is not just simple. And there's kind of a teaching in that to say that our mind is kind of has its own life, has its own energy, it kind of has its own opinions about what it feels like doing, you know, um, kind of like a dog or some kind of a pet, you know. <laughs> I'd like to go over and smell under this bush. <laughs> so noticing that the mind shifts around and jumps around and stuff, it's, um, is it possible to say that this present moment is maybe not that interesting to it? Like if we look at our present moment right now, like do we really like love it so much? <laughs> like, <laughs> is it so fabulous? <laughs> but there's another, I think, reason why the mind somehow, or it's, it's a felt reason, not, you know, not like it's put in there by some you know, I, I'm not saying that I know why this is, but it seems like you know when the rain stops and if we wanted it to start again, we couldn't make it start again. And there's something in the moment that we can't hold on to because it does keep changing always. You know, or I remember um, Sayadaw Pandita, my teacher, saying, or he's a teacher for kind of a lot of us here. He's even been a teacher for Larry. And when you're young, you just can't wait to be older, and then when you're older, you wish you were younger. And there's nothing you can really do about the rate of change or the type of change that the body's going through. It's just going to do what it does. Yet we can sort of hold on to an image of in our mind, like it's possible to sort of have a delusion about um, different things. Or we can just hold images in a certain way that we can't hold the flow of life. And I think somehow we uh, don't necessarily find it easy to trust the flow of life because it's bumpy. It's outrageous sometimes. It actually has 
terrible things happen, you know, and they might happen to us, and some of them probably will. So there's a temptation to just kind of live in a fantasy. Um, It's also important that we can take our attention off of things. Can you imagine, like, if the first thing that you paid attention to in the day, you'd be like, only this. (laughs) Like, I think that would be like um, some kind of, close to some kind of, Disorder, And I think we all know actually what that's like when we get stuck in something. That's part of what the Buddha is talking about. Like we can't get it out of our mind either. So to talk about the past, the traces that are in the mind, or sometimes the past that we never had can make us unhappy, sort of. Like my young sister um, wanted to be a debutante, so my parents provided that for her in uh, Miami, So there were all these parties she had to go to and stuff, and just a tremendous expense. And I was kind of a, you know, late 70s kind of hippie. I still don't really like to think about how too much about what I'm wearing and that kind of thing, you know. So there's this big dance I went to, and all these very well-dressed younger people were there dancing, and I was kind of scowling there. I asked my dad, well, what do you think, Dad? And he said, oh, um, I just wish I could be out there dancing with them. And I was so like disappointed in him at the time because I thought, you know, I want you to be my dad. I want you to be happy to be the dad and the age that you are. I want that as a model for myself that as I grow older that I'll just be contented with what I've got. And um, now that I'm older and I've seen more of life and I understand things more, I know that my father like grew up when he was that age. It was right after World War II and his brother had been killed and his mom was depressed and I could imagine, well, like, him feeling like he might have missed some gaiety at the age that my sister was. So I feel a lot more understanding and uh, for him and his wishing, and even just for anybody's wishing. Like, the older I am, I'm so much less of a martinet than I used to be about how people should be <laughs> and stuff. So there was a kind of tenderness that came up about understanding why my father was in that moment the way that he was. But at the same time, it's like I use this story as an illustration of how we all can be like a little bit stuck in feeling like something that's going on now is not as good as what used to be. Has anyone ever felt that? Like some relationship that ended or some period of our life when we felt like we had a lot more free time or we didn't care or, you know, while someone was still alive or lots of stuff when there were more animals. You know, did you guys read that 58% of it? wild animals have died in the last like 40 years it's really sad and it's actually okay to be sad it's the thing is getting stuck there getting stuck in the reaction and not letting the reaction pass to because what will happen then is that we'll live in a world that feels so ruined compared by the comparison we'll be paralyzed um by not being able to really enjoy what's available to us now or what's good about our life now. Like if you're, if one is sad that one is older, it's like in the moment of being sad in that way or if you get really too much into it, it's like you forget about all the good stuff about being older too. Like for me anyway, how many more dimensions I think I can see and how much more tolerant I am if only because I can't remember. (laughs) 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 
Rumi says, uh, do not grieve. Anything you've lost will come back in another form. And it's true, you know, in a way, like the people who've died, like it's sad that they've died, but we actually still have them in a sense. Like the memory of a person is often um, almost the same after they've died as when they were alive. It's just not refreshed quite as much, you know. The other thing is to say that um, part of mindfulness is to know that we can accommodate pain in our experience um, and that it's not going to kill us, you know, that it's not going to destroy us if we let ourselves have a feeling of loss, for example. So this is from um, Desmond Tutu, or Mpho. I don't know how to pronounce her, his daughter's name, Mpho. I want to be willing to forgive, but I dare not ask for the will in case I get it, because I'm not yet ready. I'm not yet ready for my heart to soften. I'm not yet ready to be vulnerable again. Not yet ready to see that there's humanity in my tormentor's eyes or that the one who hurt me may also have cried. I'm at the prayer before the prayer for forgiveness. I'm not yet ready for the journey, not yet interested in this path. Grant me the will to want to forgive. Grant it to me, not yet, but soon. So that's for the being stuck in the past. Like if we're stuck, then may we have the ability to move. Um, I'll speak a little quickly about, I could spend the whole rest of the evening on just the past part of this. I want to get to the future. (laughs) But let's say about what happens in meditation. Like there's these, it's not just the mind like going there out of preference. It's like there's also some real imprints that arrive with us from the past that uh, seem to be stuck to us, like us not being stuck to it, but us, it stuck to us, like different kinds of reflexes that are wounding for us. And I think actually the practice is wonderful as a healing for this kind of phenomenon. To say, I've led into it by saying that it's okay to be with a heartache with full awareness that that's actually a position that is quite beautiful for us to take. My teacher and dear friend Jack Cornfield often teaches from the place that we bring the wounded parts of us into mindful awareness, um, into the presence of that which knows. And there's something about not being completely in it, but being able to see it or hold it or enfold it in our mind or recognize even that we're sort of hurting right now or we feel overwhelmed or something that we sort of hold ourselves through those experiences and see that they pass and then they don't hold us in quite the same way. But the mind seems to, as we're students of the mind, have the wish, the ability or the need or the property of being able to remember things and getting imprinted. And again, that's important too. Like if we forgot everything, like, well, we've probably all been afraid of getting so old that we forget everything, and that's really rough. Um, But like an imprint today while I was writing the talk, someone sent me in one of those email forwards about the discovery of this new kind of giant leech in the jungle of Borneo. And it's like this long and there's these worms in the jungle of Borneo that are this long and the video was of the leech swallowing the worm 
And it was so horrible. (laughs) (laughs) The worm is there kind of minding its own business. It's like a big earthworm or something, and the leech is kind of coming up. And the leech is really bright red. And it's slithering along, and it starts sort of like kissing the worm, and then it suddenly starts sucking on the worm, and it looks like as if your pants were like swallowing your leg. (laughs) And at the end, the worm seems like it doesn't really notice it for a little while, and then all of a sudden it starts trying to get away, and then it's... And at the end, its tail is all like this, and it's like, oh, it's so like, ugh. Anyway, (laughs) I wonder when the imprint is going to like be replaced by something else in our mind, because that does happen. But I noticed that like this, this little clip was really like moving and disturbing and horrifying, and that I was identifying with the worm, kind of like feeling really bad for the worm there. But in a certain sense, we don't have to, like going back to a little bit the flavor of that thing about we're not going to try to crawl into the present moment and lock the door and keep everything out. It's like we do have to open to this stuff or we're called to with some courage to actually feel compassion and that the compassion matters even if we're not able to do anything about the fate of that worm like, um, or to expand our understanding and say that the leech needs to make a living too it didn't, it's not its fault that it's a leech it just is that way <laughs> not to take just one piece of the story and get stuck in that part but it's funny you know the mind prefers in some ways to live in its drama and fantasies and inner conflicts and when you're a little bored like have you ever noticed that old arguments can come up or like think people that you've forgotten that you've been offended by and stuff <laughs> I was teaching a retreat this past weekend where one person was saying we were practicing with the quality of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral and trying to be with pleasure, um, challenge, and boredom with the equal attention. And this guy raised his hand in the front and he said, well, when it's pleasant, it's pretty easy to t- pay attention because I want to be there. And when it's unpleasant, it has that kind of gripping melodrama quality. And he said, but in neutral feeling, I started having long fantasies about doing things that would basically ruin my life. <laughs> So I'll read a little story about being uh, free from imprints of the past or knowing that they're there. And that'll be the end of the past. My authoritarian father ruled our house and long after I left home, I continued to hear his voice. All the negative things he'd ever said about me still colored my perception of who I was. After I got married, my mother-in-law welcomed me into her heart and helped me feel better about myself. She had become a widow at a young age and had raised seven children alone. I tried to emulate her strength and resilience. When my own daughter grew more independent, she decided to get an eyebrow ring. Watching her undergo the procedure at a tattoo parlor, I thought it would be symbolic to have a small butterfly tattooed on my ankle as a reminder that I was free from my past. So I did. That evening we had a family gathering and someone told my mother-in-law that I'd just gotten a tattoo. She looked at me sternly and said, I do not approve. I found the strength to reply, luckily I didn't do it for your approval. At that moment I knew I had stopped worrying about other people's opinions. (laughs) So in a sense saying that even though this person had loved her and embraced her, she didn't actually need it every minute. 
it's also kind of a trust in relationships sometimes to be able to do something that the other person won't want and think that it'll come back. So, the future. I'm going to rush through the future, I guess. <laughs> so, the, why do we not get stuck in the future? Or why, what's the point of dwelling in the present? And for the future is yet unreached. And I think it's easier to see that the future doesn't sort of exist because we don't have a picture of it to hang on to in a way. Or we sort of do, but it's a little bit, we have more of a sense that we don't know what's going to happen. We're aware of that. And our images are a lot less distinct, whereas with the past, the images feel kind of confirmed and real. Although the neurobiology of that is that we keep making it up again and again, and our memories keep changing, and, um, even though we rely on them. So about people who meditate, just taking any um, random sample, where are we going with our meditation? And what do we need to become? Or how do we need to be? And what are we trying to change? And so many fantasies for us as meditator type of people that can allow that can allow us to be sucked into another feeling of inadequacy or not being contented with the moment and the way that we are right now, right? Like we feel like we're practicing in order to be less stressed out or um, understand different things about ourselves for whatever reason. But um, I'm just saying the same ideas about clinging to some sense of who we're going to be or who we'll be able to be in the future can also undermine the present, just like fantasies and nostalgia about the past can undermine the present, too. We're always comparing how we were to how we are and also how we are to how we will be, right? Doesn't it almost feel like we live in a little spider web of that stuff that if we're not really aware of it, we don't really take account of it and it can feel kind of weird if we think like how unreliable our projections were like how many times have we met someone and thought like this person is 20 years younger or older than we thought that they were or um, getting married is nothing like I thought it would be (laughs) Um, and not to say that it's not important to try to sort of project and prepare ourselves for different things or me to have written the Dharma talk and you know, tried to imagine how I was going to put it all together or not using those faculties, but there's a driven element to our uh, construction and weaving of this sense of ourself. Joseph Goldstein um, says that he made a little notation for his meditation practice, like he imagined this little cartoon character who was named Wazam Wilby, and that Wazam Wilby keeps showing up, like... <laughs> I was like this, I am like that, I will be like so. So the am part of was am is also the part that kind of defines us or clicks down on like, this is, how, this is what I'm like, I really suck at this. Or, wow, I'm actually pretty, yeah, good. Um, which also gets projected onto other people, like how we kind of keep people in boxes, in a sense, uh, images of who they are. Like we have three or four experiences of them, and then when we meet them, we don't necessarily refresh all of that. We don't take the energy to really connect with them or listen carefully to intonations and hints and the things that people say sometimes. I remember when I was a younger meditator, and one time I... um, we got very inspired by this thing that the Buddha said that he was going to sit under the tree and until his bones went to powder or he was enlightened. And 
I said, I'm going to do that. So I sat down after breakfast one day and sat 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 and lifted up down because my butt was sore. And then I sat down again and sat some more and stuff. And about eight and a half hours later, I got up and it was like I still had a cold. <laughs> I was like, all right, well. I kind of missed it in a sense because I thought, well, I guess I'm going to get enlightened some other time rather than that, you know. <laughs> That's when you have more energy than brains, I guess, something like this. <laughs> but expectations, like they can be so much more toxic. Like um, when you, what about when how violent your mind can be if you open the door for someone and they don't say thanks or something like that, you know? Like you did something for somebody and they just like swallowed it up and they took you for granted, you know? Did you do it? You know that you didn't do it because you wanted them to say thank you, but it can be like, you can just get so angry sometimes from what you want from something and it doesn't happen. So that's being stuck or expectations for the future. Thinking about as much as we thought about how much better it was when we were younger, we can think about how much worse it's going to be when we're older, right? (laughs) There's the Jewish um, prayer that Leonard Cohen took on um, which is a part of the Yom Kippur and um, liturgy. Who by hunger and who by thirst, who by earthquake, who by plague, who by strangling and who by stoning, who shall have rest and who shall go wandering. It's kind of like this, gives you goosebumps, like how will we die? What will that be like? And we can be pretty young and still afraid of dying. I thought I wouldn't make it past 30. I had it in my mind that I was so wild that I would die. Um, now I've gone way past that. And when Leonard Cohen uh, redid that prayer, or reframed it, he said, uh, and who do you think is calling? I think that's a way of kind of stopping it. It's like a really deep question about what's going on here? Who are we and where are we going? And those moments just before death, if anyone sat with someone who's dying, those moments that happen just one at a time also. So the more we cultivate the ability to be with what's going on now, I think the more likely we are to be able to be with what's happening at that time. Jeffrey Hopkins said that his whole spiritual practice of compassion came from understanding that the last moment of life is just going to be another one, another moment like this one. It's not going to be like everything's stacked up. It's just like this. So we'll come into the present moment now. How do we bring the moment alive as we notice when we're having a future thought. It's like we don't actually have to move and like shove the future thought away in order to be in the moment. It's just that we have to wake up to what's happening in the moment. So whatever quality is present, let us be clearly aware of that now, here and now. We can think of a thought as, we can notice whether the thought is pleasant or painful. But this dimension of uh, being able to be aware of it brings a healing quality and can actually help us make plans if we're very present while certain kinds of planning thoughts are going through our consciousness we can see how our organism actually reacts to them more than what we think we should be feeling we can notice what we're really feeling a friend of mine wrote a um, article it just came out in Newsweek it was just picked up uh, Jennifer Earls um, about how being mindful in your body can help you make career kinds of choices and stuff can help you know a little bit more like what your deeper layers are 
responding, how they're responding to thoughts that are in your mind or plans. My father said when he was diagnosed with cancer, um, I asked him, like, how's he feeling or was he worried? And he said, I've decided every day is the best one I'm going to get. So I'm not really going to worry about the future too much. So not to get swept away by what's in the present is whatever arises to be able to be with it and welcome it into our consciousness through mindfulness, which is not exactly how we live these days. Has anyone noticed that too? Um, Elizabeth Colbert wrote in the New Yorker, our multitasker might be nursing a Belgian craft beer while nibbling on sushi, reading The Economist, listening to Lord, and booking tickets to visit his girlfriend in Stockholm. I mean, are we overwhelmed? Does many people in this room know what it's feeling overwhelmed is like? And of everything that seems to be expected of us to be done in a single day and how rapidly communication takes place and how many people we have to stay in touch with and keep up with and stuff. All the tasks. In 1928, John Maynard Kynes wrote that great prosperity was coming and it would bring us so much leisure time we would need to find new ways of figuring out what to do with all our free time. And as this article by Colbert, which was reviewing several books on modern-day overwhelmed feeling, um, half of his prophecy has come true. The prosperity is here, and the leisure is not here. And cut to the chase, her final paragraph is that it seems to be that we want more and more things, like it's actually due to kind of a sense that our standard of living needs to keep going and that wealthy people seem to be the ones that work overwork the most and less well-off people are the ones that work less, which is kind of interesting. So a feeling of how much do we really need to be happy, to be able to rest in the moment. Sakyong Mipam said, there has to be a point where we allow ourselves to rest and feel who we are. This is a very important moment because if we can feel who we are, we find confidence in our goodness that no matter what experiences we're having, we can be with them. This is connected to non-attachment. Really, there's no good or bad day if you're thoroughly there to experience it. And I know that for me, the worst days tend to be when my mind gets really like up into itself with anxieties and plans and unfinished business and stuff like that. It's kind of an energetic with, there's a lot of very um, swirling kinds of anxious thoughts about accomplishing things or wishing that something were not happening that is happening, wishing that I could be doing something different from this. I'm getting very frustrated with the amount of mundanity um, it takes to like fill out the health care form so that I can get reimbursed for by my health insurance for the health club membership and finding like, going and finding the card and it's like putting it in the mail and it seems like there's so much of that and then I had an insight about it like this is our activity it's like the plants photosynthesize maybe they don't like it you know <laughs> like, we admire them <laughs> we need them but we need to be doing this for some reason. And we might as well try to enjoy it or at least, at least accept that our days are not going to be necessarily composed of these like mind-wasting insights. There are going to be a lot of little stuff. 
So maybe the news is that it doesn't need to matter what exactly is happening. It's how are we with it. The emergency room nurse Maria says, sometimes it's not too busy and I can work on automatic, check on a patient or do paperwork while my mind drifts off to a million other things. Then we might get a whole crowd of incoming patients, accidents, heart attacks, asthma emergencies. I do my part, but I'm always tuned into the whole of what's going on. I've learned to open my awareness. It's as if my mind gets spacious and still, present, sensitive to what's needed, and yet kind of detached at the same time. I'm in the middle, doing everything, but some part of me is just watching it all silently. So, that ability to watch it all silently um, from this non-violent kind of place. That's the auspicious way to spend our time. And coming to a talk like this, I hope, will help us all to kind of beef up that clear mind ability that everybody has. It's not really about getting to one particular place. That's sort of the grasping thing or getting away from something. It's how best can we be expressing who we are, like um, really till we go to the cemetery, I guess, whether that's sooner or later. It's, it's really this, like to be who or what we are as fully as possible, as consciously as possible, as openly as possible without uh, having to apologize or think that it needs to be something else. It's really beautiful teaching, I think. It's a kind of homecoming feeling. So thank you for your attention. And should anyone like to stick around and um, talk, that's good. I think we have some time for that. Is that right? And then also if anybody needs to go home, feel free to go. Someone else take the microphone, please. (laughs) So if you want to ask a question, we have a nice microphone here so that everybody can hear your question. Or you can say something about your experience. And if you could pass it to the next person. This is, I guess, about the future part when you were talking about um, um. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.